My name is Tyler. Welcome to the Horror Pod Class. Yay, everybody. It's good to see some familiar faces, some new folks with us tonight. But everyone, welcome uh, to the Stray Cat Film Center, where uh, Oren and I, once a month, uh, hope that you will come and enjoy the movie that we have presented, uh, and then stick around for a little discussion about maybe the intellectual repurposing of said horror film. It might actually be vaguely intellectual this time, too, because we got, you know, an actual intellectual film as opposed to some of the stuff I picked. Yeah. (laughs) Uh. It's always intellectual, and uh, for the most part, I think uh, Catermass or uh, Quartermass or Quatermass or whatever it is that you would like to pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, I think will be a great example of maybe some stuff that will be uh, useful. Those of you that are new to the pod, uh, we present the show in essentially three different segments. The first segment, Oren and I will briefly chat about some of the things that we're interested in. Uh, The second part, we will introduce our essential question uh, and vaguely attempt to answer it, but most of the time we do not. We might this time. Eh, I I think we will, yeah. Uh, and then third and finally, we'll give you some other films that if you like this, that are, that you could watch perhaps as a double feature, uh, you know, at least in theme and tone and uh, maybe director and everything else. So, yeah. All right, Andrew. All right. So, uh, yeah, yeah, from just what we went through. <laughs> yeah. All right. Talk to us. What are you excited about? Um, so I'm excited. I just got... Um my copy of Project Vampire Killer, which is the new thing from Jonathan Rabb, who I always like everything he does. So I'm really excited about that, um, especially since it's like semi-Castlevania-inspired. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, um, I'm a big Castlevania fan. Uh, and then um, I just watched, and my review of it I think went live today on mm-hmm. Signal Horizon, uh, the the new six Second Sight 4K of The Changeling, which um, uh, The Changeling is a favorite ghost movie of mine. Um, and now I kind of want to buy the Second Sight 4K because it comes in like a slipcase and it's like a whole book with it and a soundtrack CD and shit. And all I got was the the disc to review. But um, yeah, it looked great. Um, it, well, looks, it looks absolutely gorgeous. I so. think the Changeling has a, a special place in in <laughs> our relationship too because I think it was one of the first episodes that so. we hosted together. I think so. And uh, I knew you were going to be perfect for the pod. Uh, Oren talked for about 30 minutes about a bouncing red bub- uh, like ball that I mean, you would buy like at a Kmart and somehow made it terrifying and interesting <laughs> and worth the intellectual experience. So, and I apparently can't shut up about it because it's also like the first three paragraphs of my review. So <laughs> That um, ball has haunted your dreams ball, forever. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's an important ball. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, anything else? I think that's it for now. Yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, some things that I am super interested in. Number one, uh, I saw The Blackening. There was a special critic uh, screening, like, last week. And uh, I got to tell you, surprisingly, from the trailers, it looked kind of interesting. It looked like it had something to say uh, about race in horror movies generally. Like, I think the tagline is, like, uh, if the entire cast is black, you can't kill us all first, or something like that. Uh, and I will tell you, the movie is 
right now it's my favorite film that I've seen this year. Uh, it manages to capture that kind of horror comedy element that I really appreciate. It has super smart things to say about horror films, but like, uh, if you're familiar with the podcast, I don't always love like super intellectual elevated horror, right? Uh, <laughs> It, and it doesn't wear its subtext on its sleeve. It is really interesting and totally worth the watch. So uh, I would also say um, we are excited here at Signal Horizon. If you are a fan of slashers coming to the Big Rip in October, we've been working on Drinkaway Camp, which is our slasher <laughs> pop-up experience. So if you like drinking beer and you want to be in your own slasher film, then... <laughs> Then bring your hams on down to the Big Rip here uh, in October, because I think you will be pleasantly surprised uh, with what Camp Drinkaway is going to bring you. So, all right. I think it's time for our essential question. So, if you have been to some films lately here at Stray Cat, then you know the month of May, appropriately, is Folk Horror Month. So, we decided to keep in theme and discuss whether or not cater mass fits that typical definition so who were they running from what have they seen whom do they fear Five million answers to these questions, and every one of them is a shocker. Terror, five million years old, spills into our time to make two worlds collide. What is happening here and now can affect the next five million years. It was what I was afraid of. The thing got a huge intake of energy. The very substance of it seemed to be coming alive. And then... And you can't see this world any longer. They feel it. They see it. The archaeologist who digs back into the past to unearth more horror than the human mind can bear. Quatermass, the scientist, who comes face to face with five million years of terror. Rony, it's Barbara. She's the one. Get down here, quick. She can see into the pit and knows the terrifying truth. He can see into the pit, but he will not believe what he sees. They were coming. Who? What were? Them. Them. He saw the creatures. They were alive. Alive? You descend into the pit of hell as you share their horror. Listen, I'm advising you all to leave. There may be grave danger. I tell you, this could be dangerous. Get back! Get back! Wait! 
Talk to me. Oh yeah, before we uh, before, before you talk before, to me about before that. Before we dig into that, yeah. let's do one of our giveaways. Yeah. All right. Uh, last three numbers are zero, three, four. <laughs> Yay! Nice. All right, all right. So here's what you get. You get the ultimate supernatural and philosophy. A Blu-ray of Crawl, When the Tripods Come, and a UFO Connection. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Yay. A lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah. Okay, so since I've known Oren, and really our first big uh, experience together, we drove like 16 hours to Atlanta. God, was it that long? It, oh was, a, it was very long, in the middle of the night. <laughs> and as one is wont to do... Uh, you know, we talked about horror films, and this one came up like a dozen times. By the time the trip was done, I felt like I <laughs> knew the movie inside and out. <laughs> but what draws you to this movie so much? Um, I mean, so we're going to talk a little bit here shortly about um, the sort of whole phenomenon around Quatermass, because um, this is actually the third Quatermass movie out of four uh, each one of which is also a miniseries. There's been radio plays, and so on and so forth. Like in in Britain, it's a whole phenomenon. Um, less so here in the states, but certainly, I mean, uh, it certainly has its fans here as well. Um, but uh, this is not even actually my favorite Quatermass movie. My favorite movie is actually the first one. Um, the first two are more straight science fiction than this. They don't have the, the folk horror elements that this one does or does not have, which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> but, um, I mean, they're, they're more typical alien invasion stuff. But uh, the first one's just a delight and, you know, great black and white cinematography, a great monster, um, really good stuff. And they're, they're uh, all of Nigel Neal's stuff, which we'll talk more about that as well, but all of his stuff to me is very good at combining very pulpy idea, like very pulpy subject matter with very lofty ideas. Um, and I really appreciate that. Like I, 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 I like a good, you know, big idea, but I also don't want a movie that's just that. Like I want something that's got monsters and shit in it too. <laughs> um, you know, give me, give me something, that's what we want. right. Give, give me something chewy. That's also nourishing, you know, yeah. like, um, and I think, you know, Nigel Neal is better at that than almost anyone. Yeah. Uh, and so um, this is probably his most well-regarded story. Um, and I think partly because it has sort of the biggest ideas of any of his stories. Yeah. Um, just just huge ideas at work in this movie. So, um, and also I pulled this quote because I think it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, and, and immediately, right, when you put this slide in there, I... I saw this movie through a different lens, right? Like uh, <laughs> you have the the military industrial complex, which for the sake of, you know, the current debate is, is certainly more conservative in nature, right? And yeah. uses traditional power. And we have the scientists here. They're like sounding alarms. They're like, maybe we shouldn't do those things. Uh, and we get conflict and ultimately disaster as a result. So, yeah, yeah man, all too real. I mean, and it's one of those movies um, where you know, and ultimately sort of the villain is bureaucracy to no small extent. Like everything gets caught up in, in red tape and, and hoops to jump through and whatnot. And it nearly leads to, you know, catastrophe. Yeah. Well, and ultimately <laughs> they go with the easier choice, right? right? Like they're like, Oh shit. It clearly is some sort of Nazi dupe from back in the day. Right. So, you know, whatever. 
Now, this film would not work uh, without uh, our main man, Bernard Quatermass, right? Yeah. What to, uh, what's his deal? Tell us a little bit about him. Okay, so um, we'll start with the name, because the name, as you may have noticed, is giving us all a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, for the longest time, literally until I had seen one of these movies, I thought it was Quartermass. Like, I thought there was an R in it. I think that's pretty common. Um, apparently, so uh, the character's original name was something much simpler. I don't remember what it was, but it wouldn't have been as memorable. Smith. <laughs> it, it, was, it was close. It was like Martin or something. Yeah. Um, like it, his last name was, was very normal. Um, and uh, Neil thought that it would not, you know, resonate as well. Like he needed a more unusual name. And so he picked one out of a phone book. Um, so there, there are real quater masses in England. Um, and uh, he picked a QU name because those are uncommon, like, partly. And um, I think he's from the Isle of Man, which I think they're a little more common there, so that might be why, like, the Nigel Neal is not Catermas. I don't know where he's from. Um, but the, the character is a professor of physics. He is assigned to a secret, like, rocket project in all three of the films I've seen, and I believe in the fourth one as well. Um, he... Uh, Somehow or other, this this assignment to the Rocket Project always gets him involved in whatever the storyline is. In the first one, um, the first manned uh, rocket flight into space uh, comes back disastrously, is the is the premise of the first movie. The second movie uh, is more of like a Invasion of the Body Snatchers type thing where um, there's, there's aliens impersonating people on Earth. The third one, obviously, we just watched, um, and the fourth one I haven't seen. Um, oh, wow! Okay, but uh, but yeah, and so each um, so the each one of the movies, the first three movies are all Hammer films, um, which for those who don't know, Hammer was a you know big British film production company. The first Quatermass, Quatermass Experiment, is actually sort of the first Hammer horror film. It predates any of their gothic horror films or anything, and the success of it is kind of what pushed them into doing horror primarily. Um, before that, they made a little bit of everything. Um, each one was a miniseries onto the BBC before it was a movie. Uh, the first miniseries, I believe, is partly lost, so there's only a few episodes of it left that we know where are anyway. Um, but the second and third miniseries still exist. They're on the Internet Archive. I actually watched... The miniseries for this one shortly before this episode. I hadn't seen it before. It's, are they essentially the same? They are essentially the same. Okay. Um, the, they're about twice as long, but um, the 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 especially this movie, the similarities are uncanny. Like they hit every note the same, pretty much. It's just each piece is explored a little more in the miniseries, but the beats are all identical for this one particularly. Uh, the first two movies deviate more from the source material, and Nigel Neal was not a huge fan of them, actually, because he felt the source material was better. Okay. Um, I like them a lot. Uh, part of what he didn't like was that in the first two movies, Quatermass is played by Brian Donlevy, who plays him as this very, like, grumpy, almost like a badger in human form, like, kind of character, and it's very different than how he is portrayed in everything else, and I kind of love him as that, but I get that it's very different from what Nigel Neal kind of had in mind, probably. Um, yeah, but that's the, the kind of good-natured, uh, yeah. professorial feel that he's got, yeah. right? I think leans into the, 
uh, the uh, the Peter uh, Venkman like esque, <laughs> you know, like we know a lot about science, we know a lot about physics, and that makes us super into like ghosty supernatural stuff too. Yeah, right. I guess so. Yeah, at least for this one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so this is kind of a breakdown of all of them because again, it gets a little. There, there's a lot of them, um, and it gets a little gets to be a little bit a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, so each one was a miniseries first. That's the the year of the miniseries. So the first one came out in 1953. The movie was made by 55. By the time we get to this one, um, the miniseries came out in 1958. The movie was made in 1967. There's also uh, a fourth one, the one I haven't seen, that was made in 1979. Um, it it's different from the others in that um, the miniseries and the movie are the same. They literally just took the miniseries, smushed it together and cut some bits out to make the movie rather than literally remaking it like they did these with different actors and different directors and everything. So the the movie version of that one is just a cut up version of the miniseries. Well, it seems to be like w- would it gain like popularity on television and then they'd be like, "Oh shit, we got to make a movie." Yeah, I mean, so yeah. the 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 TV miniseries were huge events at the time they came out. Like they were so you know, in 1953 there really wasn't anything like this to speak of, right? Like, TV like this largely did not yet exist. Um, it's one of the first sort of character-driven, serious, paranormal, you know, sci-fi-type TV shows of its type. Um, it, it would, you know, informed the creation of a lot of things like The X-Files and that kind of stuff years later, but, but in 1953, it was really novel. Like, there was very little else on TV like it. And so it was huge in Britain. Um, and so, you know, Hammer saw that and was like, well, yeah, shit, you know, that was huge. Let's make a movie of it. I yeah. mean, and the movie then was huge in its turn um, and turned Hammer, uh, like I said, primarily into a, a horror producing uh, studio yeah. from, from the success of that film. So, Well, I think uh, getting back to, the, to our, our intrepid uh, <laughs> doctor, uh, Catermass, for a moment. I think that idea of like an investigator, a scientist, right. a detective, if you will, uh, that comes in to explore really ancient things that maybe don't make sense to our modern sensibilities is our first clue, perhaps, that maybe this movie really does have some connection to folk horror. Yeah. And thus, we did not screw up Andrew's theme for this month. <laughs> don't, don't you think that is a... Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's definitely like... And there's definitely something where... Um, you know, it's nice to have a, a character like Equator Mass to anchor your film because you've got a character who has a reason to do these things, right? Like, it's curiosity, essentially, in his case, right? Initially, it is... It, like, in the first movie, he's directly related to it. Like, it is it is his rocket that goes disastrously wrong. But in the subsequent ones, like this one, he has no reason to get involved in this one except that once he gets involved right at the edge, he's curious. He wants to know more. And you've got a guy who has both the desire to dig into this and the resources to let him. Like, you know, he works for the government. They will let him in to some extent, even if he has to fight with them sometimes. Well, Um, and that's one of the things that I think we've explored on past episodes dealing with folk horror is that kind of intersectionality. That's probably the wrong word. That uh, (laughs) the, 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 you know, the connection between old and new, right? And the kind of uh, tension that we feel both throughout this film, but a lot of other folk horror where, like, modern folks are like, that's not really what that is, man. That's just uh, whatever. That, that old way of doing things 
doesn't exist or isn't real or isn't important, right? Yeah. And we get a lot of that in this film, a lot of dismissal of those kind of past lessons right. or whatnot. Yeah. And, and both the idea that, you know, but the, the, the past things are ridiculous. Like even, even Quatermass does it once when she brings him the ghost file first, the first time. He's like, you know, we can't, right. we can't occupy ourselves with that. Like that's superstition. We can't, you know, do that. And then he later comes around. But, um, but also like not just that superstition is something we can't do, but also like that whatever understanding we have now is a perfect understanding. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I um, like that. You know, the, the, you, you see that in, in Breen, especially, like, he knows what's happening, he believes, and he believes that his knowledge is complete. Right. Whereas Quatermass is open to the idea that his ideas are wrong. Yeah. Well, um, in many ways, right? Quatermass's uh, initial intelligence, right? Uh, he, he like tells the guy, "Oh, the diamond bit won't work. You need a. I, don't know, I feel like it's made up. It's like Borison, I think. Yeah, like uh, you need a, you know, unobtainium drill to be right. able to get in there or whatever. And uh, so it's like his initial scientific folly, right, or uh, hubris, if you will, kind of is the trigger for everything in right. this film, right? Yeah. Before we get too much further past, I, I want to spend a little bit of time. Next slide. Uh, just talking about this. Uh, <laughs> y- y- you can see how the miniseries inspired the movie and how much growth took place, right, in how we create sets, how we do designs. The bottom line is, obviously, the weird giant crickets or whatever they are, grasshoppers, uh, to our modern sensibilities look a little silly. But I think, like... They look pretty goddamn good for 1967, you know? Um, I mean, so the miniseries actually, I think, is actually better than the movie a little bit. Okay. um, Which is, I think, a pretty common opinion on this subject. Um, And weirdly enough, both the Martians and the scenes of the Martian race purge thing on the TV that we see from her mind are both definitely better in the miniseries. Like, these special effects are better. Oh, okay. On them, for whatever reason. Uh, I don't, I don't, like, I don't know if they said a better designer or if they had more time to work on them or what the reason is, but both of those are considerably better special effects. Yeah, so maybe talk to us a little bit about, because I think that, uh, uh, part of the reason I think we're both drawn to this film is the kind of essential weird elements of this film. And... The, the grasshopper holocaust, right? For lack of a better term. I <laughs> right. mean, it is, uh, no. I mean, you know. Even, even the kind of crappy version in this one is such a great sequence. Yeah, like, it's yeah. so weird. And you get so much out of, like, I don't know, essentially like eight frames of, right. of that particular movie. In the miniseries, how did that that differ? Uh, I mean, it's it's basically the same. Like, they, they use the same technique to get it. They use the the little helmet that reads your mind essentially and turns it into video. Um, and uh, it's it's essentially the same basic idea. The sequence is just better, slightly better special effects, but it's done the same way with the grainy footage feel and the like skipping frames and everything. Um, just the, basically the grasshopper Martians look better essentially okay. is all it boils down to. Like they're, the ones in this one, like they're clearly not mobile. Like they're, yeah, they're right. clearly just like, like static figures that yeah. they're moving on a stick. Yeah. And the ones in the other ones, they, they more like puppets. They're, they move a little better. Okay. Um, and That's fair. so, um, 
Yeah, I and, think. And uh, there's also a few other differences, like the the rocket is a different design. I, I managed to find basically the same shot yeah, that's from so both good, of them. Uh, yeah, that's great. Um, my little uh, diorama here, if people want to come look at it, I got it off Etsy. It's great. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's from the miniseries, so it's got the rocket that definitely looks like a rocket and nothing else, as the instructions point out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I dig it. I dig it. Well, yeah, I think... Uh, I, I, so I think now would be a good time for me to ask. All right, I've seen this film four times. Uh, I do not have a rational explanation for like what the end of the film is, is uh, about. Um, like I can I can get close to it, right? The idea that like we somehow have some of this like uh, pre-human knowledge and skill base that the, these alien grasshoppers have brought down to us, but also this desire to purge all things that are different, right? And is that where the dudes in suits come in? They're more of the pure... Yeah, they're the more Martian ones. Right, right. The, the more grasshopper-y, if yeah. you will. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, again, this is going to be necessary... <laughs> Explain this movie to me, This Lawrence. is going to be necessarily um, <laughs> brief because, like, whole books have been written about this movie specifically. Um, there's a, a book that's pretty good. It's It covers Nigel Neal broadly, but it has a lot of stuff about this book. It's called We Are the Martians. Um, I believe it's by PS Publishing. It's a British publisher, and it's quite good. Um, but essentially, my my reading on it is is that, you know, that the, the premise is that five million years ago, Martians came. They abducted what would have been human ancestors, took them back to Mars, fucked with them, like genetically modified them, um, brought them back to Earth, and those became humans. And so the only reason there are humans, as we are humans now, is because of Martian interference. As part of that interference, they essentially stored genetic memory um, that would make us behave the way they wanted us to. Okay. Um, which was this this very... Tribal. Tribal, um, purging one another and so essentially in addition to uh these martians explaining literally every superstition right like one of the ridiculous things about this movie is that literally every paranormal phenomenon gets folded under these martians so like poltergeist activity esp clairvoyance um ghosts the, you know the, like uh, the, uh, the, the actual devil the end, right yeah. the actual devil all yeah. that stuff is because of these martians and because of this genetic memory that they left in us and these faculties they left in us that we could use as weapons because obviously they could do this, right? And yeah. so they gave us the ability to do this, um, to to move things with our minds and all this stuff, right? Once we were activated, essentially. Um, and but they wanted, and but also in addition to all that, like racism and tribalism yeah, and right. our our desire to other other humans also comes from them because they are, as the movie reiterates over and over again, they are evil. Right. Like the Martians are not. Are they are neither benevolent nor neutral? They are evil, and that evil takes the form of tribalism, right. essentially, kind of genocide or right. yeah. xenocide or whatever right. you want to. Yeah. And um, when the ship, because the ship is made of essentially like a living material, right? Right. Like it's, right. It's, yeah, we it's, get that at the it's end. It's an active material, so it when it absorbs enough energy, it gives off an activating signal, essentially, that makes us revert to our Martian programming, at least some of us, right? And yeah. one of the nice things, I think, about the, the ending is that the person you expect to be the one who is immune is 
Quatermass, right? He's the main character, but he's the one, he's not, you know, Roni is the one who's immune. He's the, he's the one who's the least Martian of the people available. Um, and yeah, no, I, I think that's pretty good. That's yeah. more or less what I got. I yeah. think my, my standing question in all of that, right. Is like, what, what is this ship? Why did it? Why is it here? Are those folks that were running from a potential purge? Are um, they? Th- so, I don't remember which version talks about it. So it may only be in the miniseries. There's a discussion that essentially the reason all this is here is because something went wrong this time. Oh, okay, all right. That the ship was coming back to drop off the the ape men ah. and couldn't take off again for whatever reason. Something went wrong. Okay, I'd, and I'd so that's it. why this ship is stuck here and all the others are not. So, Catermass is a character created by Nigel Neal, right? Yeah. And what what is the name of? I knew I was gonna like this movie the first time I watched it when, uh, like, the stop, right? The subway stop that we Hobbs spent End. so much time. Yeah. It's Hobbs End. Hobbs End, of course, is the fictional town from one of my favorite horror movies of all time, In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah. So, talk to us. So yeah, uh, we're next gonna talk slide. a little bit about so. In a lot of ways, this movie uh, is is hugely influential to a lot of movies that have come since that don't always, that aren't always obvious. It's not always obvious in the ways that Nigel Neal's writings and specifically this movie are influential on other things. But one person that Nigel Neal has been hugely influential on is John Carpenter. You can find Nigel Neal's fingerprints all over John Carpenter's stuff. I pulled out a few. Um, you know, Carpenter is a huge Nigel Neal fan. He's said this many times. We mentioned already that The Town in the Mouth of Madness is named after this film. Uh, the screenplay for Prince of Darkness was written by John Carpenter under the pen name uh, Martin Quatermass. I, I, not, not to step on you, but let's spend a little bit of time talking about Prince of Darkness, right? Yeah. Again, another favorite film of mine, but one that uses that idea that we can scientifically pull out yep. evil, right? And, I mean, and it's a, do something with it's it. It's essentially John Carpenter doing his Quatermass in the Pit, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's a very similar idea. We find this buried artifact, essentially, that can reach out and affect the minds of the people around it. Um, to apocalyptic ends, right? I mean, it's to the, the, the same way that, you know, Assault on Precinct 13 is his very different Rio Bravo. Um, the Thing is his very different The Thing. Um, <laughs> this is his very different uh, Quatermass in the Pit, right? Like, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, his, it's his Nigel Neal movie um, yeah. to a huge extent. Coupled, uh, even with his uh, use of, like, uh, you know, prehistoric knowledge or whatever. Right. We get these kind of dream sequences in yep. Prince of Darkness that like are staticky, that yep. like don't tell us the full truth, but we get enough of it to know like there's some messed up stuff that's gonna there's happen. People right? sending like video signals through time. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah right. Yep. And I think uh, interesting because he is projecting from the future, right, instead right. of from the past, yep. which you know obviously this movie does. Ah, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. keep keep going. Talk um, to us so. Sort of the, the culmination in many ways of uh, the relationship between John Carpenter and Nigel Neal is that Nigel Neal actually wrote the screenplay for Halloween 3, um, which you can totally see, right? Like, right, it's got, it's got, it's got so many of like Nigel Neal's big ideas in it. It's got some of the same stuff that this has where, and, and so this movie on the stone tapes, uh, which is very good, but has, yeah, but it's very good though. Um, but it's, it's another Nigel Neal uh, TV movie. Um, they both have a similar idea about like ancient artifacts recording thought essentially and replaying it 
as ghosts. Um, and you can see that also in Halloween 3 with the way they use Stonehenge to, um, once it is activated, cause psychic phenomena. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of, lots of very Nigel Neal touches in Halloween 3, but also it's very different from his other movies, and he hated it and had his name removed from it. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, but then also, uh, a quick mention, so since we just watched this film, the uh, opening credits of this film have been uh, claimed, though there's no confirmation of this, that they influenced the very famous opening credits of Halloween with the slow uh, pan-in of the jack-lantern and everything, by contrast to the very slow you know, re- reveal of the skull with the credits off to the side. And they are very similar looking, certainly. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I think uh, a good illusion anybody that <laughs> is uh, looking at John Carpenter and his direct influences, like, after you put all this together and I've seen it, it's like, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like, when you're trying to understand John Carpenter as a filmmaker, like, you have to, there, there are, you know, certain people you have to look at, like Howard Hawks, he loves Howard Hawks, um, you know, he it, just certain influences that are, that are imprinted throughout his filmography, and Nigel Neal is definitely one of them. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I think it's a it's a useful experience to go through this movie and just look at so many other horror tropes that can directly come from this, right? And uh, I think it just tells you how kind of unsung the hero Nigel Neal is, especially to folks that like modern horror. Yeah. You know? So, good. Yeah, and his stuff is basically all great. Like, there is not really a stinker in the bunch. So anything he wrote is good stuff. Yeah. All including right. Halloween 3, even though he didn't think so. <laughs> I love Halloween 3. <laughs> All right, next. Yeah, I, I wanted to take just a tiny bit of time. Uh, I know we're running a little short on time. But one of the things that I really, that, that spoke to me about this movie is that idea that, like, essentially science that is that far removed from our own scientific sensibilities, right, often looks like the supernatural right. and horror movies love to exist in that kind of liminal space. Right. So uh, I don't know. Why, why do you think those things play so well together? Um, I don't know. <laughs> That's a, no, I, I should know. I feel like I should know. Just drawing a blank right there. Yeah. I, I For me, man, I think I, they're all things that we don't know, that we are grasping for uh, some sort of answer, right? And some people feel more comfortable with faith-based solutions, right? Uh, some people feel way more comfortable with scientific-based solutions. And those two, the farther you get from the baseline, kind of intersect, I don't know, in my mind. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, and something I was going to talk about on a, on a slide a little bit down the road, but we'll talk about it here because I think it fits here. Um, is that like so there's a few things in this film that um, are different they they tackle uh, common tropes but in a slightly different way um, and one of those that I think is really relevant here is um, the idea uh, the chariot of the gods idea that um, came from a book that I believe was published after this film came out but Just um, so they, they <laughs> wouldn't have they wouldn't have had that phrase yet but the idea the chariot of the gods is sort of the idea that um, you know, ancient uh, civilizations like the pyramids. Um, you know, ancient ancient artifacts, ancient like uh, the Cochia mounds and right, all that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- those were made by aliens, right? The idea that aliens came to Earth and helped people make those, or made them themselves, or showed people how, or whatever. And you find that in 
a lot of films. You find so that in, much stuff. you know, honestly, Prometheus, which is on our list here. You find yeah. that in uh, the Alien vs. Predator films. You find that in so many things. Um, the stupid fourth Indiana Jones movie. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so so many things. But like, typically, that's a very colonialist point of view, right? It's, oh, it's oh, this idea. So good, yeah. It's this idea that that these people who made these things could not have been advanced enough to have made them. So obviously, aliens must have helped, right? Which is, you know been roundly debunked but it right. still still comes up unfortunately um, but the interesting thing about how this movie deals with that is that yes you know like there is an alien presence in human prehistory except that it's so far back that it's not responsible for any of those things it's literally responsible for everything yeah it's not like oh well white people can build cathedrals but people in South America can't build pyramids no it's that literally everyone is actually aliens yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's this connected history. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't want to belabor this slide too much, but uh, you mentioned the stone tape. Yeah. Uh, and then we have uh, Ghostbusters, very obviously, I think famously. One of my favorite guilty pleasures is Stargate, uh, where we get a lot of that kind of colonial. And I, we, I think we that's a lot such of that Chariot of the Gods stuff. That's in Stargate. so that's such a smart reading of that trope, though. Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Another favorite, the Prestige, kind of uses cloning and, and magic and some other yeah. things. Uh, and then Prometheus, which is, I would argue, like directly related to this movie. The idea <laughs> that you have these uber minches, right? These uber creatures that seed with their own genetic material, right. other genetic pools that will then grow into their own things, yep. right? Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, I think the beginning of Prometheus, they actually uh, show a dude doing that, yep. right? Well, I say I, a dude, but if I, you know, if I recall correctly, it's thing. been a minute, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, so next slide, Andrew. We're going to try and actually answer our question. Oh my Cater God. Cater Mass. Folk horror? Yes, no, maybe. I mean, so. I, I would obviously argue that it is since I picked it for this month. <laughs> um, but, like, I'm not the only one. It's in, uh, uh, what is her name? The Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Kira La Janice. Yeah, right? Kira La Janice. It's in her uh, documentary. Hmm? Uh, the documentary Woodlands. Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah. yeah, it's mentioned in that. Um, and, I mean, but I mean... I think it's it's obvious that it is at least it at least overlaps with folk horror, right? Like whether it whether folk horror even is a genre of its own or not is up for some debate. But clearly, this is treading a lot of the same ground, right? Like yeah. the stuff that it's, it's it's literally explaining almost all folklore <laughs> yeah. in in this big fell swoop. Um, but you know, also it is you know the stuff is is literally it's buried in the past, it's buried in the earth. It's, um, you know, it's part of the folk. It's part of our genetic heritage. Yeah. Um, all this stuff. But it's also very different from what those usually are because those are usually, like, the superstitions are correct. There really is a witchcraft or, or ghost or whatever, whereas this is both the superstition is correct, but it is being misinterpreted. Like, he has a line at one point, like, what, are, what if ghosts were actual phenomena like badly observed and incorrectly interpreted or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's so good. Um, and essentially that's what this is saying is that like all of our folklore has been these things that are real things, real events that are really happening, but we've been interpreting them wrong because we did not have sufficient information. We were missing key pieces of information to correctly interpret this, these phenomena. 
Yeah. Well, so. and I think in that way embodies that kind of conflict that we talked about at the very beginning of the pod, that idea that there is this tension between folks that, uh, you know, uh, believe in the supernatural, supernatural, and the scientific community, and sometimes they can be in conflict. Cater uh, Mess in the Pit says, screw that conflict. We, we are going to predate that by <laughs> five million years and come up with a reason, right, and yeah. come up with all of that. So, yeah, like – Martians are the reasons why uh, we have folktales, right? Yeah. We have folk horror. Yeah. yeah. All right. So ultimately, yes, I think we've I think, agreed with that. Yeah. All right. Very that's, good. I think that's my conclusion anyway. I think I agree with it. So you're good. Um, I think uh, next slide. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of the last things that uh, we need to at least address a little bit is that idea of eugenics. Yeah. And we earlier uh, in our kind of Slack channel when we were putting together the episode, uh, we stumbled across an article that talked about folk horror as a representation of the kind of the eugenics movement or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, eugenics as we see it. So, yeah, um, the article in question is from um, a uh, website called Cine Excess. Um, and it's, uh, it's a really good, it's a really good article that talks about, uh, you know, the eugenicist movement that was popular around the beginning of the 20th century um, and its relationship to folk horror and specifically to British folk horror is what it's talking about, although it's not talking about um, a lot of the traditional folk horror usual suspects from Britain. So it's not talking about like Wicker Man or right. um, Blood on Satan's Claw or this film or something. It's talking more about uh, things like um, Eden Lake and uh, oh, some of the other ones, which is great. It's uh, oh, um, Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, uh, it, it's very, very good modern, kind of rough to watch. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, oof, it's, I haven't it's, seen it. It's intense. Um, but but anyway, it's a very good article. But uh, as we were talking about it, um, and I was talking a little bit about you know. Um, there's a lot of overlap between, you know, the stuff in, in Quatermass or, or a lot of Nigel Neal's writing and then some of the things that, like, H.P. Lovecraft wrote about stuff where it brings in um, both science fiction elements and supernatural folkloric elements. Um, but Lovecraft, very racist. This is not news. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but, but Lovecraft was also a believer in the eugenicist movement. The eugenicist movement was the idea that we could improve humanity by selective breeding, essentially, right? We would We would do exactly what the Martians did, basically, and we would get rid of imperfections and mutations and things that were bad. And of course, the things that were bad to the eugenicists were people who were poor or criminals or not white or, right. you know, things like that. Um, often uh, people who had mental illness or physical defects, defects by their definition. I, I used air quotes there. You can't see that on the podcast, <laughs> on the obviously, but... Um, you know, uh, but, but that was kind of what the eugenicist movement, it, it was born out of these very racist, very colonialist ideas. Um, and while I don't know that it was intentional, I feel like this film can easily be seen as kind of a repudiation of that idea because both, uh, you know, both eugenics is literally what the Martians are doing, which is 
unequivocally called evil in the right. film, and, and probably is. I mean, and it is. You know, yeah, like, the, 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 but yeah, the film the film makes no bones. Giant grasshoppers it. matter, and all that kind of jazz. You know, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Ultimately, it's 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 bad, probably. Um, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe genocide is pretty definitely bad. Even yeah, even <laughs> on Martians and whatnot. Yeah, but what I found interesting, right? Like I love that idea that the the Brits feel really strongly about the connection between eugenics, folk horror, and class, right? right? Because at the end, when we have people turning on each other, at least this time I noticed most of those people are all really well dressed. Like the dudes have suits on, right? Mm-hmm. And like uh, the people they're going after clearly are not those people, right? They right. tend to be dressed a little shabbier or have jobs, right? They, they have kind of what, what uh, some folks in British culture at the time may think of as menial jobs or whatever. And that's messed up, right? Yeah. Like the more Martian you are, what even <laughs> subconsciously you got elevated in, in culture and in society. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, definitely, uh, you know, it would, it would be not to put too much weight on any particular reading here, but like, it's not reasonable to not tie a lot of the end of this film to fears of like communist sleeper cells and stuff, right? Because right. the original, the original film was made, the original miniseries was made in Britain in 1958. Communist sleeper cells were a big, <laughs> a big cultural fear at that time, um, and definitely there's that idea that right, like you can have people who seem normal in quotes. Uh, become activated by something and suddenly they act against you and all this stuff. And that's definitely at work here, but I also think there's a lot of other interesting things at work as well. Yeah, so that's good. All right, I think it's time for our last giveaway tonight. Yes. All right. Where do we put the bucket? I don't know. What do we do with the bucket? (laughs) Bucket. Oh, I have it over You have it. All (laughs) right. Okay. All right. Pick one out. You. All right. Last three numbers are zero, two, eight. All right, you get the real meaning of Doctor Who, cursed films, the War of the Worlds, and analog scientific facts. All right, we're about ready to wrap things up. But we always like to leave you, if you really dug uh, this movie as much as Orin and I did, uh, here are some films that we think are similarly themed that would make for a great double feature if you wanted to program both of them at the same time. Uh, so I picked two movies that are both British with really big ideas and basically apocalyptic endings. <laughs> Fair. Uh, <laughs> I picked uh, Ghost Watch from 1992, which we showed on the pod a while back, and it was it's a great movie. Yeah, we showed um, it at Halloween. It was yeah. some of the most fun I think we've it's ever had. so good. Yeah. Um, and then I also picked Life Force from 1985, um, which is... I don't even know what that movie is. So. Oh, my God. So it's, Sorry, I'm a, ba- yeah. I'm a bad horror guy. It, it deals with a lot of the same stuff this does. Like, there's big <laughs> alien bullshit in it, um, and London gets completely destroyed at the end. So. Nice. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Oh, yep. All right. All but it right. does have it does have uh, Captain Picard in it. Though. Oh, all right. Uh, <laughs> I love me some Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I picked uh, the 2020 film Underwater. Uh, they both involve pits, uh, but also kind of like big. Uh, n- not to spoil the ending of Underwater, uh, so plug your ears or pause the pod. Uh, but they have big, like, kind of. Cthulhu like aliens that are either predate us or post date us or from a different dimension or yeah. whatever. Um, 
And then I picked Scanners, which I think has the same kind of like slow death by bureaucracy, right? <laughs> like how would the military use this stuff, right? right. And uh, I don't know, felt kind of similarly uh, similarly themed in like paranoia and conflict and there's, that kind of stuff. There's some of that bureaucracy stuff in underwater too, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, that's true, yeah. especially at the end of the post. Yeah. Uh, the the, post. During the credits, yeah. Yeah, oh yep. yeah, yeah, very, very good. Okay. Well, uh, we hope uh, our wonderful crowd here will come out in June. Before we take our summer break, we always like to do one June episode, and the new Insidious movie comes out. Uh, First in- week of July, I think. Yeah. So we'll be doing so, it right before that. Yeah, perfectly themed. Come watch a free screening of Insidious. I don't know what our essential question is going to be. So, <laughs> But I, I really like Insidious, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, so. yeah. It's, a, I, I think, one of our both of our favorites. So and, and a movie that I have seen, so I'm excited <laughs> <laughs> yes, will this, will this be the first time we've picked a movie? Not the first, <laughs> uh, but they are rare. So, <laughs> well, very good. Uh, where can everyone else uh, find your stuff uh, on uh, the internet, Orin? Uh, so I am Orin Gray, pretty much everywhere. I'm on Facebook and Twitter for now, and not yet on Blue Sky or whatever the hell the new thing is, but probably will be eventually. Um, as well as, you know, Instagram and at OrinGray.com. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, I run the day-to-day at Signal Horizon, uh, an online magazine dedicated to uh, exploring the intellectual side of horror and science fiction, or I'm running the day-to-day as the speech and debate coach at a high school in the Northlands. So we hope that we will see you again in June. Otherwise, class dismissed.